Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of Full Exposure with me, your host, Brian Kelly. Hey, are you guys having a great summer? Because I am. I just got back from vacation and I'm feeling refreshed. I was up in the Silver Lake area of lovely Michigan. Uh, beautiful, huge sand dunes there. Did some dune riding. Flew, some, uh, flew my drone quite a bit. Did some swimming, some pontooning. You know, you're not in Michigan unless, uh, you know, you're not uh, worth anything in Michigan if you don't sit on a pontoon boat for uh, at least part of your summer. So I did some of that, Um, reunited with some family on my wife's side. It was a good time. Tons of my nieces and nephews in town, at least uh, up at this uh, cottage we are renting. And uh, I feel good. I feel good. Uh, One of the reasons I feel really good going into August and... um, September is that September 1 is a huge date for us here at the podcast. We are going to be announcing our first partner, our first advertising uh, partnership with the podcast, and I could not be more pleased with who it is, what it is, and what they represent in the region, and uh, I'm just pumped about it. So without saying too much, September 1 is the date where we're going to definitely um, Make uh, make a big announcement, and uh, you'll start to hear uh, their partnership with us. So that's all great. Um, a couple house cleaning things about this particular episode. Um, Kent Dobson is my guest. He's a former pastor. He's an author. Um, we get into a really deep um, conversation about religion, spirituality, what we believe, what we don't believe. And it, it, this episode may not be for everybody, and I think that that's okay. I think some people are turned off by religion. Um, I certainly am at times. That's uh, usually not my favorite uh, thing to, to dive into uh, real deep. But uh, this conversation is an exception. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Kent. Um, he goes uh, to a lot of places. He's very well-read. He's a big thinker about these things. He spends his life and his professional life uh, dissecting the human spirit and God and spirituality. And um, I don't know. I enjoy the conversation, but I fully realize if right now you just want to bail, and uh, that's okay. Because <laughs> um, there's times that these things are hard things to talk about, especially honestly. Um, I think Kent and I had a really raw and honest conversation about uh, a lot of different topics. And... Um, I hope you enjoy it. Even if you're not into religion, I think there's some stuff in here that you'll definitely find um, inspiring. Kent's journey, his his thirst for knowledge, for meaning in life is especially inspiring. And uh, he's someone who is not afraid to abandon everything that he thought he knew and take some risks. And that's what he's done. And I think that's a, a huge example for all of us, whether you agree with what someone believes or doesn't believe Uh, We can believe that uh, pursuing an authentic path for yourself in life, in your particular journey, is admirable and uh, will always have my respect and should have the respect of all of us, no matter what religion or belief structure uh, or no belief structure that you're pursuing. If you're pursuing it with authenticity, honesty, uh, hey, that, that is a path to some type of clarity in your life. So let me introduce formally my guest. Kent Dobson was the leader and pastor of one of the best-known megachurches in the country. He had a good salary and the notoriety enjoyed by most pastors that hold that position. 
but Kent's own hang-ups with religion and the struggle to find what he truly believed led him to leave Mars Hill in a move that shocked many people. And just a month after making that monumental decision to leave Mars Hill, his father, Ed Dobson, who was a famous pastor, died after a 15-year battle with ALS. This one-two gut punch to Kent propelled him even deeper into the abyss of finding his true self. Thankfully for us, Kent hasn't quite found it yet, and he's candidly sharing his journey, full of his frustrations, doubts, truths, and personal struggles, both on his podcast as well as an author. He has a book that came out about a year and a half ago. It's an amazing read. It's called Bitten by a Camel. That's not a metaphor. Kent was actually bitten by a camel uh, in one of the lowest points of his life. Uh, I won't go into that. You should read the book. But uh, in this winding and long conversation, Kent and I discussed the death of his father, how he became a pastor in part to please his dad. Uh, We talk about certainty and doubt around God, death of ego and the soul, wishing things were easier to understand in the spiritual realm. Uh, We discuss the thirst for ultimate meaning. We uh, talk about that coin slot Christianity that's prevalent in the United States. And ultimately, we dig around how Kent feels grateful for his own hangups with religion. So yeah, this is a big one. This is a heavy episode, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it if you are at all in a search for meaning uh, in your life with a higher spirit, spirituality. Uh, Kent is someone that we all can learn from uh, because uh, he's studying many, many things and incorporating them into his life. So anyway, let's explore the bigger picture with my next guest, Kent Dobson. Well, I'm sure you bumped at the old Calvary, I'm sure, when your dad was there. But anyway, I was on a motorcycle trip with him for his 80th birthday year. Me and my brother, older brother, went, my only brother, went for a ride. I just went out to Maine and New Hampshire, and my brother lives in Massachusetts in Boston, so we just flew to Boston and then rented motorcycles. My dad rode his motorcycle up from Florida to meet us. And then we did like a week just around Maine and New Hampshire. But it was awesome. And I forget why I brought that up, Kent. 80th birthday. He's 80. Yeah. What kind of bikes? I just need a visual. Well, I rented an Indian. Nice. My brother rented a Harley. Yeah. And then, and I've done this before where you just fly where you want to ride. Mm-hmm. And then you rent bikes, and you don't have to ride through Iowa or Nebraska. Yeah. Or Ohio would yeah. be the worst. There's a thing where I, I, on the podcast, where I punk Ohio a little bit. Really? I used to live there, and I don't like it, but that's my problem. I don't know. Anyway, my dad's, he's pretty amazing, still riding motorcycles at 80 and playing racquetball. And... All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you coming in. You're, I wanted to talk to you for a while because we bumped into each other a lot the last two or three years, it seems yeah. like, more and more. We have some mutual friends, and then I see you at a party or two here and there. But then I think the first time I really met you was when you were doing Failure Lab yeah. and shot a portrait there. And um, how did you like that experience with Failure Lab? I couldn't hear the story because uh, the premise of that shoot was you come up 
Well, maybe we did it different there because of the setup at Fountain Street Church. I couldn't hear your talk, and I don't want you to give it again. But like, what was that experience of like just sharing failure and then leaving? Well, um, it was first of all my personal contribution felt right. Like, yeah, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna tell this story about being bitten by a camel and um, sort of crisis of faith. Um, and I'm going to stick to the rules, which was something like 11 minutes, and which I, I'm happy to say I, I was close enough. But the, the whole experience was strange because I had to wait backstage, and, and I could tell people were going too long, and it was weird, and, and I was last. I was the very last person to go. So there were certain elements that I, I didn't make me happy. Yeah. Just because you have no idea the mood of a, of a room. And after all, I'm, I'm not just like delivering some abstract talk I give all the time, you know? I, it, was yeah. a, it was a new talk. and You need some energy back. Exactly. Or feel it out, and right? what, what is this place and who are these people and why are we talking about failure? So it's sort, sort of odd to be ushered onto the stage and then give this very short thing and then leave. <laughs> so <laughs> in that sense, it was, it was strange. But the premise of it, I think, is kind of amazing, uh, especially the idea that you would tell a story and not moralize it. Yeah. And not say, and now I'm a successful, you know, radio host. That's <laughs> the beauty yeah. of it. You just, like, weave the story of the biggest egg you've ever laid, and then yeah. you're just like, peace out. Exactly. You guys deal with us now. Yeah. Um, well, we were talking during your shoot. I have two questions. One is, do you normally, you're, you're a public figure to some degree for sure, and you've had, you're an author, and is being photographed something that you normally enjoy, or what are you thinking about <laughs> when you're like, I have to do a portrait? Is it like the dentist, or is it something else? I think I've done two portraits. One was with you, and the other was with you. <laughs> so, and may, I, I, actually, a few years ago, I I did a program for the Discovery Channel. I hosted a program on the life of Jesus, and that was my first time behind a camera. But when you're on location, it's it's different. It's yeah. um, you're walking around, you're moving, and uh, maybe they took a few still photos, but it was more on on set. So it's not something I'm I'm very comfortable with. Yeah, having my picture taken. What am I thinking about during it? I'm thinking about. Man, I I'm sure I look stupid, and <laughs> I'm not very photogenic, and I wish I was doing something right. like, like an extreme sport or, or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Something cool. <laughs> yeah, and not just sitting in a chair. <laughs> look at that guy sitting in a chair. Um, well, the um, but we were talking during the shoot about your writing process, and I found it interesting that um, you were talking about just when you write that there isn't necessarily, there's the initial idea to write, but it, it meanders around a bit within that space. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about what, do you write before you speak? Or is it something that you write out word for word? Or are these just um, ten, 10 ideas you're getting to and you'll speak in the moment and improvise to get there? I usually have an outline with public speaking or even podcasts, I'll have a, a kind of outline. And I'll simply... That's what I'm doing wrong. There's, <laughs> no, outline. A, yeah. There's no outline for That's this. your problem. That's your problem. <laughs> but I don't mean like if I'm on a podcast with someone, then yeah. it's much more free. But if I feel like I need to 
create a little map. And if there's something... Well, your podcast, again, is you, you're speaking mostly, you know, you're, it's just you talking. Just so me. you have to have some type of map. There yeah. isn't a... Yeah. Sometimes I have a title, and, um, and the title will usually get me going. It will remind me, oh, yeah, that's the, that's the direction I'm aiming. And then if there are a few things that I think are important, like a sentence or a quotation from someone else or... Um, something like that, then I'll write that down in my notes. But other than that, I just kind of uh, work toward it. And, and I, I do love, it's here's the sort of dangerous side of it. Things occur to me, and that's the, a blessing and a curse and, and while I'm doing it. And so I usually go with things that occur to me, sort of like the, the I guess, the Greek idea of the muse that taps you on the shoulder. And so I usually go with it. But sometimes I'll I'll find it was maybe some some wounded part of me needed to right. <laughs> needed to speak for a second and I'll I'll regret having opened my mouth. But other times I think yeah that's I didn't know that that's what I wanted to say but that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, and it's uh, I guess that's that intuitive nature. I think that that what makes you a good public speaker is listening to that voice, even though sometimes it may be wrong. Or maybe too vulnerable or too off the point of maybe the larger picture that you wanted to paint for people. But has that improved over the years? Like, when or were you always comfortable speaking? Um, no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say I was always comfortable. I felt like I could generate the right kind of energy to do it. Mm-hmm. But when I first started and I still struggle with this, I was simply spitting out things that I heard, like assimilating the information and chucking it out there in a more palatable fashion. Like scripture? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or stuff people said about scripture. You know? yeah, right. I did a lot of repeating of, of what other people said. I, I think that's probably how a lot of teachers get going. And, but it did occur to me over time, I have got to find my voice, and it started to really weigh on me. And um, I still struggle with that because I really like ideas. Right now I'm super mm-hmm. into Jung and depth psychology and um, eco-psychology and, and James Hillman and all these. Um, and I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a psychologist by training. I'm into myth and story. So I feel like I just absorb these things. And a lot of times it will just come back out mm-hmm. of me in my own words. But the, the task recently has been actually to become more personal. And it maybe started with my book, Bitten by a Camel, because my editor was just hammering me. It's like, quit. Nobody gives a shit about ideas. Like, quit quit giving little mini theological treaties on things mm. and tell me what you think. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to. But this is in front. <laughs> so that's in front of, that's the, I think it's one of the problems I have. Uh, I converted to Catholicism three years into my marriage. And I grew up in your dad's church, and before he arrived, I grew up with the two other pastors before that. So it was a very evangelical, uh, you know, sort of mindset growing up. And converting to Catholicism, what I found about homilies by priests was that there was that reading, and the whole church is preaching from that one. You know, it's the same everywhere. At least the premise is the same. But I just the, the the priests that I enjoyed the least listening to or found the least inspiring were the ones that just sort of went through the liturgy, or the 
uh, you know, and and didn't really personalize it in yeah. a way. And I think that's actually not to get too off topic. It's a problem with the church in general, the Catholic Church especially. To me, is that they're put up, leadership is put up in this in very impersonal sort of positions where you're not walking with anyone, you're not getting dirty, you're in the rectory and you're cardinals under robes, and it's like it just seems so detached from regular life. And it's like, how is this? How are you supposed to? have anything in common with the people that you're talking to yeah. <laughs> when they're isolated like that. But yeah, I mean, I might've opened up a can of worms there, but I don't. Are you, but, are you still a Catholic? I mean, what would you yeah. say? Well, it's been, this is, yeah, this is good because uh, we're going through some things now as a family that were, um, some things happened in our church and like, we got more involved some things we didn't agree with that the priest had done, denied communion to um, a same-sex couple, mm-hmm. like in the moment, and didn't talk to him about it. And that was, like, horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, uh, because if you want to open that can of worms, then you have to deny it to people who have been divorced. And, yeah. you know, like, I mean, where do you stop? So mm-hmm. don't pick on one population, basically, is what we're saying. So... Uh, we should all feel welcome and not threatened. So we worked through that, and then the priest apologized for that. And I'm not saying my wife was very involved with it, but right now it's very idle. Like, I am so conflicted about the church in general, these scandals. I don't like the architecture growing up in the church I grew up in. Like, this idea of a hier- the hierarchy of the Catholic church is still ridiculous to me. Mm-hmm. And just the pomp and hats and the thing. It seems ridiculous to me. Well, in the evangelical church, it's the hierarchy of just the individual church. It's the same thing in, like, right. in a, a micro way. Yeah. Well, that's my big problem with all of it is just the idea of putting any stock into any organization. I don't care if it's a religious organization, a corporate. Like, there's... You put man inside of that with, uh, meaning the human beings, mm-hmm. the power structures, politics, greed, um, lust, all that stuff. All our garbage that we are walking around mm-hmm. as people is going to manifest itself wherever we are, whether it's a school. Mm-hmm. But the abuse is really that, the sexual abuse by the church for me, it was the thing I can't. How could you align if that was any other organization in the planet? Yeah. Well, I mean, how is it surviving? I have no idea. And does it deserve to survive? I don't know. In its current form. So, I, I mean, you're asking hard things. Yeah. But this if, is why know, I brought you in. If, so <laughs> I, if we can't get anywhere in the next three minutes, we're just going <laughs> to shut it down. <laughs> but it's not, it's not isolated to the church. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, it's in yeah. Hollywood. So if it's there in this, in this bastion of liberal acceptance, then it's everywhere. Oh, and for sure. It's in the Western psyche. It's in the shadow of the Western psyche. And we don't know what to do with sensuality, sexuality, eroticism. Uh, in other words, being a human being. Right. And the church is the worst at trying to clean all that up, or that holiness somehow equates to floating off the ground slightly and being not human. Yeah. And so it all just goes underground. And Well, in that, I think there's differences of... Um when someone is vulnerable and that is taken, that's another line that's crossed. I understand um, 
it's especially egregious to me because of the spiritual power and the, sure. the pulling of the levers of, uh, infl- you know, of that abuse and how that's hidden and how it's manipulated in real time using your authority, de- you know, given by the church and God. And God, yeah. God. That's the worst part. So mm-hmm. that to me is like how the damage is so much more than some other type of abuse because you're, you're also abusing whatever fragility of faith you might have had to begin with. Yeah. And so, so why not just storm out? Why not just say enough is enough? Well, I would have, but yeah. I'm, my, I'm being mindful of my wife and I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to pull her out in that way. Mm-hmm. I've stopped going regularly mm-hmm. and... I'm not suggesting you should. I just no. I just wonder, you know. Well, I think all of us. That's the thing. Yeah. It's like, how is there really going to be meaningful change if we're always working on reconciliation to a certain degree when the church for 100 years has proven over and over again that it's going to protect the power structure and these people who are seem to me to be very the opposite of love and warmth mm-hmm. in the structure of the church to me. And then other people feel differently, but it just doesn't feel like I want to. The best people I've ever talked to that really can move the needle for me towards something, break through my cynicism about certain things about religion and God and faith was like, were people who were I enjoyed being with. Like you might actually enjoy having them over for dinner and have an easy conversation and be inspired by them. But like, there's always this tension around leadership mm-hmm. and, and I don't know. I think I'm, it seems like I'm picking on the Catholic church, but that I think it needs to be picked on. And I think mm-hmm. people should be more angry and they should be more upset. But I also, they have all their chips in that basket. And I came from a, different perspective I arrived to it in my 30s Mm -hmm. early 30s so it was like you have a fresh perspective if you're a cradle Catholic like you you can't leave like how that would be horrible Mm -hmm. yeah because then your whole life's been you're invested in it yeah and I don't I mean if we can just talk more broadly for a second like I mean these are difficult things in the most general sense, to even wrestle with, because I, Richard Rohr, who I'm a big fan of, says things like, "Wherever you have the very best, you have the very worst." Yeah, and that's his way of talking about the institution of church. And um, I don't know. There's something about that that I trust. Like I, I honor people that sort of stay in it, but I don't know. I don't know why, uh, because part of me just says, hey, "Let's just move on." You know, right. Let's just move on. Period. From right. organized religion, from hierarchy, but, but then it tend it, things tend to go in sort of a religion of one's own, a mm-hmm. spiritual. You become your own mini pope, and that's kind of boring. You know, you don't, well, it I, is boring, and I think it also. If I were to just leave and just say whatever, then what does that say about what I deserve for love and compassion and reconciliation of my own life? You know, like I mean, if I can't extend it to if I believe in that place or that uh, church or the people in it, then they deserve the same benefit of the doubt that 
God might extend to me or forgiveness or, but I don't know. It just seemed like they're, <laughs> the hard part for me is just this, it's just so, so horrible. Yeah, and, it is. And I don't know. But you said something interesting, which I really liked was the best is with the worst. Mm-hmm. And that, I think the worst situations in my life have had some some outcome that was probably the best thing that not that I was controlling the outcome but like it had some I, the worst challenges when you emerge from them have created something that's ultimately a lot better so yeah. there's this I come back to this more and more and I'm not a deep reader of spiritual things and I'm not an explorer of religions um that I would practice or try to find something. But the idea that I'm arriving to more and more is this idea of energy and just moving through life. You know, there's good things. It's it's like a... It, I don't even know how to articulate it other than it's more of a Buddhist idea of, like, having a spiritual energy that can ebb and flow. And mm-hmm. things ebb and flow, and a lot of that energy is connected to your family and individuals and organizations. Like, it's mm-hmm. it, it's like a tide that moves in and out, you know? Yeah. It's not... It's like the yin and the yang, or, yeah. or the Taoist image of <laughs> darkness and light, and a touch of both uh, being... A, a touch of light and darkness, and a touch of darkness and light. Did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, me too. I mean, that's 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 just true. That's the way. Well, there's the universal truth that I think I'm arriving to more and more that were framed very small when you were growing up. That has only one way to think about things. And if you explore it in other religions or other ideas, that was dangerous. That was it was portrayed as being dangerous, and you mm-hmm. would never rely if it took your diverted your attention from. Um, Christ coming and dying on a cross, you know, and and the salvation narrative. Mm-hmm. If it diverted for a second, it was evil, and you shouldn't even take your eyes off it for yeah. a second. But the idea of that, just as I become more human and put more, I mean, as I put more miles on my life, it seems universally like, of course, that makes sense. And then the problem is how we frame those ideas. I think God is much larger than a denomination. Yeah. Yeah. And and as you were speaking, I was thinking of another sort of cycle that I I suppose that's related and just collapse and renewal in general. And the tragedy is not that there are all these present scandals in the Catholic Church that are tearing it apart. The same scandals exist in the evangelical church. I mean, Mm -hmm. the exact same ones. The Southern Baptists, for example, are just up, you know, it's a nightmare right now. Mm -hmm. The same kinds of sexual abuse that's been happening. So, the sad part is this has been going on for, well, thousands of years or hundreds of years or decades, yeah. um, depending on what we're talking about. Um, that's the real tragedy. And the fact that things are in crisis and a kind of collapse, good, because that's, that's that like apocalyptic, um, the mythic idea of the apocalypse, that some kind of implosion happens mm-hmm. so that seeds of something new can can be seated and it works in the macro too like even then i obviously i'm not working out but the point is you have to break (laughs) down muscle tissue to build it up like there's a a destruction that leads to the positive of growth and strength so even that makes sense to me and like that makes more sense to me than 
chapter and verse many times. Yeah. It's like, oh, of course, this is life. This is, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just there's so many. I don't know. I wish I had. Uh, I wish I was a better, um, you know, I, the Pete Holmes esque where you do know about Ramdas and you know you've read him and you've done. Is that even say his name right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, uh, you know, those ideas. I'll watch a documentary about him and I'll go, oh, <laughs> that resonates a lot. And that person was very uh, a conduit of of different type of thinking and understanding about spirituality and the universe. And that seems very refreshing and appealing to me. And then, uh, but I, you know, it's just really through lumps of life where I'm like, I don't, I'm figuring this out later because I could never really fully get in lockstep with anything up to that point, you know, mm-hmm. like to go, okay, well this is, there is no certainty. That's the other thing. There isn't one thing. There's people in my life that have, never wavered from that you know Mm. but i you just have to abandon like challenging certain things like then when things happen in your life i don't know that you can uh deny doubt yeah well doubt is the doubt is probably the um most misunderstood natural human I guess it's a kind of emotion or it has an emotional quality to it because it's not just, I don't find real doubt to be just mathematical ideas. Like this plus this equals this and then now I'm not sure. Maybe it's this plus this minus this, you know. It's much, it's existential. And, um, you know, my favorite character in the the Gospels is the doubting Thomas figure because I think finally, you know, (laughs) finally somebody's being honest. (laughs) Right. And, uh, but, and so, and, but you don't have, if you don't doubt, you actually have no possibility for faith. There's no such thing without it. And somehow we've been told that faith is the absence of doubt, which is just silly. It's silly. It's wrongheaded and it doesn't serve people well. Um, the, the people I trust the most and even insiders, you know, I'm a kind of an outsider when it comes to church world, I suppose, but even insiders, who get up and say, I'm not sure what I think about this. I think, all right, now now this is somebody that's worth listening to. Right. Um, who has access to their own their own humanness, their own doubts. I mean, I wish the Pope talked like that. More yeah. people would more people would, would say, All right, now now we're going somewhere with this. Yeah. Well that's the that's the idea of coming off the pedestal even as a Pope, which is impossible when you're infallible yeah such a a stupid idea it is such a stupid idea i mean i hate to say that i mean but it is it's the way it's you just spared it out i'll take the heat on that one but it is i mean i know a human i don't care what what how much smoke comes out of the chimney you know like when you puff the white smoke and they pick a new pope and it's like okay well i don't know it's just uh that confusion though is where I'm, I've been living the last, you know, 10, 15 years of, like, I, I don't understand uh, so many things. But I feel more spiritual than I've ever been. It's mm-hmm. not in the same... I wouldn't articulate it at all, like, even though I've been a member of the church, but I don't... I don't of the Catholic Church, I don't... I really, very little I believe about that, mm-hmm. it's, you know. But... I think that the Catholic Church in general preserves the mystery and magic of 
of religion uh, and of a and the archetypal magic of something mm-hmm. the rituals the rites the smoke the screens the robes uh, all communicate something that has a kind of richness like when i walk into you know i lead trips to israel and i've been all over the middle east and greece and rome and <laughs> standing in these really amazing places and the architecture as you know just being a photographer the architecture is a, is a language unto itself and a kind of yeah. sacred language and is communicating something that cannot really be communicated any other way. Like if, you, if you're standing, like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem has a, a rotundra, rotundra, yes, uh, a round section. That is the oldest part of the building. goes back to the 300s AD. And at the very top is a kind of skylight. Mm-hmm. And what are we standing in? So we're standing in these columns, which are kind of like trees, archetypally. So there's this kind of upward orientation and a rootedness. So it's like the meeting of heaven and earth. Nobody's thinking this going in there. Right. You have the sky light coming in, and, and during the course of the day, the light sort of spins around the room as, a, as the sun goes from uh, east to west. And what is that? I mean, there, there's a sense of, uh, again, this lightness and darkness. There are no lights inside the rotunda. It's just this natural beam, which communicates something of like uh, the divine, I suppose, or mm-hmm. the light of Christ, you might say. But it's, it's a, and here you are in the middle. And in the very center of the rotunda is, is the tomb of Christ, this sort of life, death, life cycle. I don't care if you believe... Um, in Jesus or that, that historical events happen the way the gospel mm-hmm. said. It's communicating something, in my opinion, that's true about the nature of reality. There's a life-death life cycle. Um, there's a meeting of the underworld and the upper world. There's the, uh, in, in a sense, we are beings that are kind of like trees and that we reach upward to the divine and yet we're mortal and we're like dust, like these columns. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's the, I mean, there's so much power in, in these, I guess this images and metaphors that communicating some, that communicate something true about, um, the transcendent, the transcendent and the incendent to sound kind of fancy, Mm -hmm. meaning the, uh, I don't know, the mortal and the immortal or the eternal and the, and the temporal all sort of meeting. And that's sort of the person of Christ. So I think, yeah, there, yes, yes to that, that kind of mystery in the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church for that matter because of their uh, rites and rituals and smoke um, still speak on that level. It doesn't even matter how good or bad personally the priest is. You know, he's kind of irre- irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> And, but the, the even evangelical church is still so reliant on somebody else telling them what somebody else said that somebody else said that it means. Right. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> the pastor is saying words. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to strip it all of everything. And um, I suppose, you know, that's, that's just part of the Protestant reaction to stuff, but it does feel kind of paper thin at the end of the day. Yeah, and it, at its worst, it's also just a charade that helps uh, people s- to keeping from really challenging, like, ab- you know, li- literally, what does this mean? Like, literally, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And 
when you're clouded in, not clouded, but that mystery, if you just, I guess my point where I'm at right now, I don't know why this became a confessional for me, but just the, the idea of just abandoning a lot of doubt, like hard, like major, major questions that I have about just how religion spread throughout the world and, and the, you know, how it traveled and, and the nature of God. I talked to you earlier about my, um, earlier today that that uh there was just points where i couldn't with through the health of two incidents with two of my daughters within a very short period of time i was like i didn't understand who god was anymore and especially how people were framing god's actions to me in the midst of a health life or death crisis and i was like i can't i don't understand this god anymore i don't i don't this isn't the god i thought I was and how people are telling me that God is acting within my family and mm-hmm. touching our family just it all just blew up yeah and I was like I'm not worshiping that God yeah. I can't I, if I am he's the biggest asshole on the planet exactly or in the universe <laughs> that he created yeah <laughs> but that there's a kind of courage to that I mean it's it's frightening to walk out on these... Yeah, I was really angry. That was the other thing. Was I was like, how... People do believe that God's very... In- Some people believe that God's very intentional about it's that coin slot. You know, you put bad into the world, you get bad out. If you put good, you get good back. And mm-hmm. Or a... It's too mechanistic. It's yeah. too... It's it's like a, like a slot machine or a, yeah. a video game. And that's just... I, I cannot... The universe is simply not that way. Yeah, there's too. It's too ambiguous. Well, and it was a Catholic priest who helped me at a very critical point. He came to the hospital. Our our parish uh, priest came to the hospital and talked to me because I was like, I don't understand. We went to, I don't know, we grabbed a snack or something in the mm. hospital, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're just talking. And I was like, I was getting all these uh, emails, nice message. They were all intended well, and I didn't, I didn't. I didn't reject the intention of the messages that were meant as comfort, but they actually provide, uh, they actually did the opposite to me. It was like, yeah, how, oh, how could God test my faith through injuring my daughter mm-hmm. or, you know, test my faith or he's, you know, there's a reason for this or he's, uh, you know, all of, all of those things where, but he's like, that's not true, Brian. God mm-hmm. isn't, you know, making uh, yeah. isn't, you know, doing this or that. And I was like, okay, well, good. At least <laughs> in that mystery, it was like, okay, I could at least take uh, God intentionally giving my daughter a brain hemorrhage in the womb before she even arrived. In, in even breathe there, she'd had a stroke, a massive hemorrhage in the womb. Mm. So how is God challenging my faith that seems so selfish to me to go okay well i'll get i'll search god out now because he wants my attention because he created this crisis in my life it just mm. didn't make any sense no. but anyway it was the priest who helped me through that at least for a moment to say okay i understand um that it doesn't have to be this way and it was always like if you didn't uh, previously to that point if you didn't believe what I was brought up in or whatever, it was like a real problem. <laughs> and you couldn't really think differently. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that strikes me as the, the real definition of a priest who is supposed to be in the business of care of souls. Yeah. And I don't mean 
ushering them into heaven or something like that. I mean, no, really having a snack in the lobby with someone and with a fellow human being and talking about the mystery of life and that life is suffering and, and, and we are here and in our own mortality and our own dust like nature. And we don't know, I can't think of anything better. That's the church at its best. Yeah. Um, when someone meets you there. And well, that's the personal nature of it. So I think when, again, to make it big and large and structure and politics and policies and, you know, meetings and convening over how you're going to handle things in a global nature within the organization, it loses that dustiness that mm-hmm. I think I was craving um, and needed at that time. It was just like it was something to just say, okay, I know... God does. I can assure you, God doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. At least the way that I He understood it and conveyed it to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, that now I'm less angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I move forward. But um, you know, it, it it reminded me of something like um, the oracle in Greece uh, was at uh, where was the oracle at? Doesn't matter. It'll come to me in a second. A certain place in Greece. I've been there. <laughs> And uh, anyway, you would go to receive, you know, some sort of message from the other side or the mystery of the, of the gods or something like that. But one time the oracle was consulted, who is the wisest person in Greece? And the oracle said that it was Socrates because he knows that he doesn't know. And I, I, I love that story because, um, first of all, it just strikes me as true. Yeah, someone who... Mm-hmm. who doesn't know there's a kind of knowing and I don't know it's like we've we've um we've forgotten that kind of wisdom especially in the contemporary church both the catholic church and the protestant church that anyone who has knows that they don't know doesn't actually belong yeah I mean and that's that's there's so much there's there's grief to that first of all it's not true like the priest sitting with you in the in the lobby knows that he doesn't know and and right. he's meeting you in that not knowing place yeah and it it paves a way out of the despair um it's actually to cling to certainty is to live in this kind of illusion that backs you into a corner and then pretty soon you have a terribly cruel mechanistic god that's going around causing suffering just what so you can so people will worship him yeah. or it well, just doesn't was, make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And that's where I uh, I got off in that. And then just the idea of um, the other the other concept, and I actually had a, quite a long conversation with my dad about that recently, was just the, the concept of hell. And it goes to Rob Bell's um, book as well about love wins and the idea of I just can't get over for generations until there was for thousands of years until Christ came that anyone who hadn't heard the gospel um, or even post post Christ and heard the message of Christ had is in hell because they were isolated in China or Australia or India and believed something entirely different and that it took us to go out and evangelize mm-hmm. and those people were in hell forever by a geographic accident. Like, I, how Zip do you believe in that? How do, you, how do yeah. you believe in that God? Like, I don't understand. Like, so I, it's just, I can't get over that. Mm-hmm. Like, that isn't something that 
squares up with me in that sense. And that's why it kept pushing me to this larger idea of what's common within religions. And I think there's some truth. That's where the truth is, is in the common threads of humanity and spirituality and not necessarily the, the, the box ticking off of, you know, am I born again? Am I, mm-hmm. you know, have I said the words, you know, and then, or have I gone to confession? Or right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all those mortal sins. Yeah. And that was, uh, I mean, part of my own experience, I moved to Israel um, to go to graduate school and live there for a few years, in part because of my personal fascination with Judaism. Mm-hmm. I, like a lot of uh, Christians, uh, when I, when I started... There are various forms. There's the very mystical part of yeah. Ju- Ju- Judaism. Judaism, yeah. Judaism, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, the, there's also an element of the Catholic Church that's like that's also more mystical. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's to go off in, a, in another direction. That's the, that's the one thing that um, just gives me some pause when you start when I start thinking like I need to chuck that religion is essentially a, an unhelpful human in, invention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I start to remember you have all these mystics who yeah. what is a mystic? So a mystic is someone who who has an experience or an encounter, a numinous that's a line from Jung, but a numinous mystical strange you could even say encounter or encounters that changes their life and their orientation and they find a way to 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 talk about that in some way mm-hmm. often in obscure terms and the catholic church or the broader church is filled with mystics saint francis is one of my favorite mystics who was comfortable talking with birds and plants and trees and tried to take jesus quite seriously and lived a, a sort of voluntary life of of poverty and love i mean he did more to um, both actually Francis and Claire, they're sort of partners in this, did more to reform the church than any two figures, period. We need another Francis and Claire. So, mm-hmm. um, and Judaism has that same sort of thing. It's, a, it's an ethnic religion, which is different than Catholicism, and you're born Jewish. Sure. Uh, and, but it has its own mystical threads. And, and part of when I started leaving evangelical Christianity, uh, I was drawn to Judaism partly just because it's old. Maybe that was part of the appeal of the Catholic Church for you, too. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, God, we didn't make this stuff up 25 years ago Mm -hmm. um, or 100 years ago. Here's a a religion that that predates the the English language. God, that would be nice. Uh, And so I I went, I moved to Israel with, with a kind of fascination, and Judaism sort of broke the door open for me when it came to other faith traditions. Okay, nobody... Actually, Ken Wilber says it best. Nobody is 100% wrong, first of all. Now, that's, that should challenge a lot of people. Right. I mean, people say the Catholic Church or the whatever, the Baptists. Okay, yeah. nobody, nobody is 100% wrong. Right. So I think that's the well, challenge, yeah, uh, you know. But nobody is 100% right either. So there's a... <laughs> I'm reminded of Ricky Gervais, the, the comedian, where he's like, uh, uh, you believe in one God, but um, there are thousands of gods. So I just... He's an atheist, so mm-hmm. he's like, I only, um, I just believe, I don't believe in one more God than you do. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> so he's like, I, you deny all the other gods, right? Yeah. I, I just, just deny one I more. I just denied one, one more. more. <laughs> and uh, so we're all. So anyway, but that idea of um, that gets me back to that idea of like being that there is more of a universe that uh, there is more commonness in that. And you're talking about religion being a 
this broken sort of architecture we put around mm-hmm. those spiritual ideas. Yeah. I mean, it must be rooted in, in a deep human longing for meaning yeah. and for transcendence and for the question of the eternal. And I don't mean that you're going to live forever in heaven. I just mean the question of the eternal. Mm-hmm. Is anything eternal? What is, what is, what draws me to the eternal or to the one? Right. You know, forget about it being a being or a God. You have right. the concept of the one in the Far East, you know, in yeah. Taoism and in Buddhism. And, and there is no God in those religions, really. Mm-hmm. But th- the same draw, it's like, it's like a yeah. human craving. And that's not going to go away. I don't right. care if you... If all of the United States becomes, what do they call them, nuns, you know, which um, no particular religious affiliation or non-religious, the craving is as old as, right. apparently, as cave paintings. So, Well, and that's if God made us, and this was back to my the conversation, just doubts that I had. It's like, if you're telling me, that, I mean, Native Americans, and uh, before we ever got here, were seeing God in the wind and the trees and the spirit. These were people who were genuinely, deeply spiritual. Same with Muslims and Buddhists and Shintus and everybody else. You know, it's like there was an an authentic thirst for a higher meaning and a spirituality that I think if God in the abstract, as we believe it in the evangelical world, will say that was the wrong way to seek that. That was the wrong, wrong answer to, you have to be in this silo of truth to Mm -hmm. be at the gates of heaven and be let in. But just because someone, you know, uh, if if I was born in Saudi Arabia, I'm sure I would be a a very devout um, Muslim. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or anywhere else. It's a yeah. geographic accident, what you believe, and it's a cultural accident. Yeah. You know, talk about being born Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's one, those are interlocked. But the point is, it's a geographic accident how you get to heaven, in my mind, at least how it traveled from up from <laughs> Israel through Greece, mm-hmm. through Europe, and then over, and oh, it really kind of missed Africa and all those mm-hmm. black people down there, you know, like... <laughs> It didn't, you know, it seems sort of a, a racist arc to me in terms of... <laughs> well, it follows, it follows the Western notion of conquering the world, you right. know. I mean, it's a, it follows its own political aims. It just happened to have a religion associated with it. Yeah. And all major religions have that sort of political, religious, including Buddhism, you know, um, including Islam. Um, but I, I think it's important to say that this is a new problem that we have to wrestle with in the 21st century, meaning multiple religions, multiple ideologies, the common threads and the differences. It's a brand new problem because, sure, religions traveled around the world, but they did very slowly. And we simply, I can get on a plane and by tomorrow afternoon be sitting in Tibet somewhere in a monastery. Yeah. And learning from a, a monk. That world is brand new. Yeah. And so what does that mean for what we believe for thousands it, of years? It means once again we're in this apocalyptic collapse and renewal and yeah. we have to wrestle with these things. And actually believe it or not the Catholic Church has led the way in wrestling with multiple religions from people like Thomas Merton mm-hmm. who spent m- most of his later life wrestling with with the East, with Buddhism 
with the gifts of the East and in and not folding it into Christianity like I have the right way and I'm just going to take what I want from it. That's yeah. one approach, but that's very, very domineering, very, um, what, what's the right word for it? Well, that's what Christianity has been doing everywhere yeah. it's spread around the world. But no, right. actually honoring this other path and seeing the, the commonalities in it. That, so people like Thomas Merton, who's a Catholic, a Cistercian monk, mm-hmm. led the way with this kind of stuff. And same with the Catholic Church's relationship with Judaism. They rewrote, so to speak, their own laws, saying, no, Jewish people are fine mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> as they are. They, they're not going to... Uh, and we regret and we're sorry that we really, persecuted literally you, persecuted you and killed so many of you and condemned you. Now, not that that's been universally accepted by the the average Catholic, but surprisingly, some of the same hierarchy committing some of the same horrible crimes also is wrestling with some of, some of broadening its own horizons. And, and to me, that's surprising. And I think that's, um, again, a task for the 21st century. And I think the state of religion in America, where you basically have kids now saying, I ain't doing this, right. Is, is just another manifestation of, okay, um, our so-called worldview can't be contained in a silo anymore. Our mm-hmm. kids, the fact that they have the internet, period, and go to school. Um, like my, my son goes to school with um, some of his good friends. One's a Muslim and one's an Arab Christian. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, a f- and a few are from India. I mean, this is in his class. Right. You know, so you simply don't have this homogenous world anymore. And the kids are saying... Well, you can't <laughs> just exist in these geographic silos anymore no. because they emerge. But I think... For me, what I take comfort in that, in the doubt, what helps my idea of being okay with doubting, because it actually brings me to where's the universal truths out of all those that happened separate from uh, mass communication and and texts going out and the printing press and evangelization and, and the internet now and everything. It's like, what was true in each of these core things that really became spoke to the God who made the entire universe, not just evangelical Christians that he yeah. wants to bring to heaven. But like, and in that, I think there are so many common things. I think we're within that framework. There is that at our core, that thirst, that uh, desire for seeing something uh, or, you know, communing with, with a creator of some kind or mm-hmm. a spiritual um being, whether God is one of, you know, how many names for God are there, you know, in in the world? There's hundreds and hundreds of them, right? Mm -hmm. So out of that, that, that's not an accident, right? that we're all seeking and thirsting for something. Mm -hmm. The accident in the car crash is how we've organized it and persecuted around those ideas of owning and becoming certain about anything where you could actually condemn fully and and judge somebody to the extent that they're not welcome in humanity either in this life or the afterlife yeah not welcome to serve uh, not welcome to enjoy communion or communion in some sort of future world yeah yeah both one and the same and there's there's a lot of grief i think that people who are raised in religion feel right now i mean they they're grieving right. this kind of error and and you yeah. have some options in grief, which is chuck the whole thing, or sit in the yeah. grief, or and I, or and double I, down on or it. double down. double down on the tr- the uh, the truth that's happening now. 
it's been it's reviving now too. So you have hardline people in on all those sides, and then there's people who are willing to wrestle with the change and mean, find meaning in that, but knowing that it can't be as it was 50 years ago mm-hmm. or 60 years ago because we know too much about each other as human beings and biology and science. Yeah. Like how it has to evolve. It can't yeah. be a static. It's funny if you think about this phrase that Trump uses of make America great again, he's expressing a kind of... Um, a kind of longing that people have for a simpler, cleaner, more siloed and certain world. And, and without mocking him for saying that, he's saying something that obviously resonates. And I think even, I think all people have that sort of, I wish it was easier. Yeah, right? <laughs> and I mean, sure. It's yeah, just was, an illusion. I it's wish there illusion. wasn't more gray. It is gray. Yeah. And I think the problem is, is that people are, we're, are, we're, we're taught in religions many times uh, that there is only black and white. Mm-hmm. There is no gray. And the world is mostly gray, I think, in terms of um, there's some universal things that I just believe for myself, but at the same time, the rest is, is pretty sticky and malleable, and it has to change when ideas change. I mean, the, I, the fact that we're doing a podcast is science fiction 50 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And then I can publish this and put it out, and anyone in the world with a computer can see it or a phone. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's a, it's a kind of a Gutenberg sort of level... Yeah revolution that's happening and it, I'm sure it has its good and its bad it's just the same ideas that make the world more dangerous can be disseminated just as easily as ones that make the world more generative and life but also like what is truth now because <laughs> truth is it, truth is whatever you are reading or believing mm-hmm. and whether it's true or not I mean that's the fans of uh, the fight now is just misdirecting truth Mm-hmm. or shoving it a little more in that direction than what it really is, or putting a better spin on it, or just outright denying something that happened. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is where I think the church, as you alluded to a minute ago, was just, you know, the young people are not, they're not down with that. They're not, you know, it's not going to exist that way. They don't think that way. They don't work that way anymore. If you just take how kids today are hired, they they pick a place they want to live first, and then they'll figure out their employment. Mm-hmm. Like, though, they want to... It isn't driven like, oh, it isn't the coin slot. It used to be, the coin slot used to be in America was you get a college education, you're, you know, you put your coins into the college, you're going to pull out a certain degree, and you're going to be able to get a certain type of income and a certain type of job, and the promise of America was you're going to then retire with a good benefits package and a pension, mm-hmm. and uh, then you get to relax for a few years before you die. Like that was <laughs> basically... Play golf. That's the American yeah. dream, right? Yeah. Or the promise of it. It was very much a transactional idea. Yeah. And now there's less transactions happening in terms of uh, that, that you can put in a coin and get anything out that you expected to get out of it. You know, now it's like you might get nothing back or you might get a hundred coins out, but it seems more random abstractly as a just a an idea. 
But I like that. I think that's refreshing that there's many paths to uh, to whatever goal you want to put. I guess I'm in. I'm really in a fog right now in terms of like just. I'm not sure where to take the conversation because I'm enjoying it, but I'm also feeling so confused abstractly in articulating some of these things that it just gets very confusing and overwhelming to me at some yeah. point. Well, it's hard to talk about spiritual things. Yeah. That's the bottom line because for the reasons that you keep um, saying, which is something like uh, certainty and doubt are part of the equation. Um, but anytime you, you start talking about spiritual things, my way of what does that mean? That means you're talking about things of ultimate meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a deep human craving. And it's also difficult to talk about. And religion isn't, doesn't have the corner on the, on the thirst and quest for, for meaning, for spiritual truth. Same with the arts, same with photography, same yeah. with uh, filmmaking and writing. And um, those are the more uh, obvious pursuits of what I would think of as spiritual truth, meaning ultimate meaning. Even if part of the ultimate meaning of certain art forms is to question that there is such a thing, it's this, the pursuit is the same. Right. Like if you say uh, all truth is um, relative, well, that's not a relative claim. That's an absolute claim. You know, that's like a, right. you just made an absolute claim about the relativity of things, and the pursuit is still the same. You're still trying to make claims about right. what the way the world is, yeah. and um, and I think one of the things that's encouraging, just to bring it back to sort of the c- cultural climate. And hopefully the the generations that are younger than we are is that um, the American dream, the coin slot American dream, isn't cutting it. And people want meaningful work and uh, a meaningful social life Mm -hmm. and and many times want to serve something larger than them. And religion may or may not help them find that. but that's, that's definitely, there's something noble, that I think, that, that I sense in young people, not all of them, but that uh, is waking up. And maybe, maybe, I don't know if you remember that line in the Bible, that it's like, um, the, fathers have, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's yeah. like, our forefathers ate something sour and our teeth are, you know, yeah. they're... they're we're tasting the residue. Yes. Clenching on it. Exactly. And it's it's somewhat bitter. Yeah. And that kind of drive I is good. That's that collapse and renewal. And um and in some ways that's a little of what we, we experienced. Our fathers, not that they're were evil or or um oppressive necessarily, but sure. something of their religious palate was sour and we don't have a taste for it. We don't have a taste for it. And so it sends us on the journey. Mm -hmm. This is one thing that I'm absolutely convinced of now. My own hangups with religion, I'm grateful for. I really am. I was raised in the South and a Baptist, fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. The Bible, God says it and I believe it. And there it is in the Bible. That certainty sent me on the larger journey. Right. If it would have been like, hey man, just think what you want to think and whatever's right for you. I would have been so comfortable. I would have never left. And I don't know. I, I, so I don't know. And now I'm checking out the other side of my mouth because in a, for young people, if they grow up in a, whatever you want kind of 
what are they going to push against? I guess that, that becomes a kind of question. I don't know the answer well, to Well, I think it, for me, I don't know. I sometimes think about if I'd had a different upbringing, what or would I be? I don't think it stops that thirst for something. I think you're just more free to explore particular ideas or thoughts uh, about religion in the, in the sense that um, there wasn't a stigma to the exploration. Right. And, right. and the stigmatization of ideas or thoughts that are outside the lane that you were brought up in, where that's uh, literally demonized and mm-hmm. discouraged, um, is uh, where the conflict is. So, yeah, I think some people can be comfortable, but I don't think it, it, life's going to eventually smack you in the face exactly. either way. Yep. It'll get your attention, and it will cause you to seek, whether it's to challenge a narrower lane that you were brought up in or to um, smack you in a way to like, I need something to hold on to here mm-hmm. and I need it. this, anything's kind of okay, may not resonate after a while. Exactly. May, you know, that. but we all don't trickle through that sifter of rubble and rock and come out the same side. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. some people are going to land on, over here and some people are going to land over there, but they're going to find hopefully that truth that sustains them mm-hmm. or at least gets them through life. Because as you said earlier, it's, it's a struggle, man. Like I don't think anyone, life is suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's that larger journey. I, I have a, a, a short little section in my book that probably deserved a, a whole book in and of itself. And that's just, that's the pattern of leaving home. And it's in every great story. I yeah. mean, it's it's it's, it's the, the Abraham journey. story. It That's is the, the journey. journey. Yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. journey. Like every Disney film. Exactly. It's the same. It's <laughs> the same the freaking point. thing. I know. Um, but we think, and this, we think. Well, we don't actually have to go on it. We th- and actually seeing it as a pattern. Right. It's like now I understand what it is. That's still not the same thing as right. going through it. Yeah. One day there's a knock on your door, and it could be that you're in a in a hospital room. Right. Um, or it could be you got fired, or you walk in and, and your spouse is cheating, yeah. or or you're sitting in church one day and you walk out the door and you say, I'm never going back in. Then now you've simply started. You've yeah. started the leaving home business. Yeah. And uh, and it is scary. That's and and, the, and so many elements of our culture want to talk you out of it. Yeah. Come back home. It's safe. Don't worry. Don't yeah. don't do it. You're gonna die, or right. you're gonna go to hell. That's right. the ultimate threat. Yeah. Um, and I just have so much respect for people who who take those first few steps yeah. into the unknown, because that is the free fall. That's the horrifying part where you step off, mm-hmm. and there's that little moment of a vacuum before there's any momentum. Whether yeah. it's down, but it's momentum. It's like a falling off a cliff is wrong because there's usually eventually yeah. leave a, a, a massive collision at the bottom. What seems wrong, but I, I, you know, like, you know, it's not death. But the point is stepping off into the unknown because you're. Uh, how did you say it? You're challenging leaving home. Leaving home was. Re- the idea of leaving home and thinking and challenging is exactly helped me frame that for a second in a way that seems right because uh, I don't know you can't I, I just don't know about anything that's that's in terms of science like you keep testing it until like it's there's always that next 
Yeah, why would that apply only to science, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But I think you you said something interesting now, which was it's not death, but from an archetypal perspective um, or a mythic perspective might even be a better way of saying it, it is a death. It's a death of the ego. That's the, con- that's the contemporary of saying it. Mm-hmm. Who I think I am in the world. That's all the ego is. This is who I think I am. I am a, right. m- a male. I'm a white Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a- Those are all how the ego is formed. And, and I'm not against ego formation. If you don't have an ego, you're in serious trouble. You're going to be in a psych ward. So sure. you, we need an ego, but it only, um, if it's going to if we're going to grow into the fullness of who we are, we have to go through at least one major and sometimes several deaths yeah. of who I thought I was in the world. And, and, and that is like falling into a canyon and you start a kind of free fall and, and, and it's terrifying. But it's also the only way to find out if there's something beneath my persona. I mean, you take right. pictures of people all the time and, mm-hmm. and there's a certain persona that is happening. And there's also the question of what is beneath the persona. Yeah. I mean, especially I know, taking big, huge personalities and here they are on film and on camera and, 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 and there's something amazing about, and a persona means mask. It comes from like the theater yeah. world, you know? And so, and the question of what is beneath that is yeah. that to me, that's the question of the soul. And, um, and it requires a kind of collapse to yeah. to recover bits and pieces of that. Well, you brought up photography, but I often just refer to that as a veneer. There's a veneer that people put on that's above who they... It's, it just protects like a shell who they really are. They bring that veneer to photo shoots sometimes. Mm-hmm. They bring it to a conversation. They I do it too. I do it all the time. Me too. And It's you know, part of how we get through life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't be raw and exposed and feeling <laughs> and crying and laughing all at the same time all the time. You'd be, you would be in a psych ward yeah. at that point. But uh, I, it's a really... Um, but that... But it happens over and over again. It's happened for for you, and it seems like it's. uh, And I'd like to get just briefly more into your trajectory through, um, you know, through teaching and lose. Like you've had a lot of like, it seems to me some rugs pulled from you, or at least uh, you thought you were working in one particular type of space, and people said no, uh, you can't do that, Mm -hmm. or you can't do it quite like that. Yeah. Or you need to conform. So you've been challenged many times just to, can you, can, is it possible for you to stay in the lane that they were uh, demanding of you? Well, no. That's, that's <laughs> how I ended up um, leaving organized church world, meaning being an, a megachurch pastor. And before that, I got fired from a Christian school for making this documentary about Jesus because I was asking questions that I wasn't answering. Yeah. yeah it was the main, that was the main critique. You can't ask questions. What did they, what would they, the, the superintendent kept saying, if you're going to um, rustle up snakes in the grass, you have to cut their heads off. <laughs> like, that's a pretty, pretty odd image, but no, that's, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. What would I say? Um, I think very slowly. I, I'm actually t- I'm going to take a line from one of my teachers, Bill Plotkin, who's a psychotherapist, and I'm in, in his training program for these uh, wilderness-based 
retreats and programs. Yeah. But anyway, he says at, at a certain point, if you're going to become a more mature adult, that's even the simplest way of putting it, yeah. you begin to choose authenticity over social acceptance. Yeah. And, and here's the trick, and here's where I'm adding to it. You don't exactly know what authenticity is. Right. It's not an A or a B. Oh, I know the authentic Kent, mm-hmm. and I know the Kent that pursues social acceptance. You don't get to find out anything about authenticity until you start trying to choose it. Well, and to me, it, you we, get in trouble. We talked about authenticity during the shoot. I was just trying to get something authentic, and whether someone wanted to be silly, that can be authentic in the moment because that's how they felt. Other people are more serious, but it's more authenticity isn't isn't a, a destination you arrive at. It's more of an ethereal feeling and what feels authentic, um, it meanders, it, you know, it can't, you know, it's moment to, to moment. I don't mean, I'm not contradicting at all what you were saying, but right. it's not a single thing. Yeah. It's something yeah. you discover and maybe continue to discover. That's yeah. what I hear that you're adding to it, which mm-hmm. is, which I agree with, but the rules of the game in the corporate world of religion is that you have to stay in your lane because if you at the top veer off course it sets everybody into a panic. And so if you want to be a part of this institution, you can't talk like that. And eventually, um, I was always pushing pushing the edge of that. But then I realized, for, I, I guess for me, I realized I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to grow up unless I say I'm not going to play this game anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's not really about them. Right. Um, it has to be, it really became much more personal. So I had to let go of that. And instead of trying to change the institution, I had to turn my attention toward what's going on for me and right. um, who am I and what would an authentic life look like? And, and to be honest, it almost felt like now I'm going to start a spiritual life <laughs> where <laughs> just, I was just sort of pretending before. Yeah. And I, I don't mean I was being fake. I just mean um, the kind of raw vulnerability of not knowing and have and saying I don't expect this religious institution to pay my bills anymore mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not going to play this game right um was an exposing place to be and that was the start of a of a deeper kind of spirituality but also just resetting the expectation that the institution is supposed to answer your all your questions yeah and it won't especially if it doesn't like the question that's posed because it doesn't have a, a, one of those transactional answers mm-hmm. that were sometimes taught we're just supposed to believe or not probe any further. It's yeah. about continuing to probe. And that's what I've admired about just what I know of your career mm-hmm. was that you took the risks when you were completely lone, you know, so isolated in that decision making. Like you left a, a, a mega church with a great, I would presume, and a, a great salary. And a, <laughs> now so that I don't have it anymore, <laughs> it was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, but I mean, to put everything at risk to move forward in a way that felt authentic, more authentic to your journey, to your, and also to be unconstrained from boards. And um, elders, and mm-hmm. you know those types of, not that they're ba- inherently bad, but they're just uh, they're there to keep the nail from popping up too far out of the lumber, out of know? the coffin. <laughs> <laughs> the coffin, yes. No, um, I, yeah. I don't, I don't want to over, you know, I don't want to sort of pat myself on the back because. It came with a lot of personal challenges. This, it was not easy. The year I left um, 
the mega church. Also, my dad died. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the same year. Same year. It actually, I, I, I was in therapy for about a year prior to that, beginning to wrestle with some of these questions. And I used what to say... Drove, if you don't mind, what drove the therapy? Like, what was, uh, what were you <sighs> trying to... If you go to therapy to heal... <laughs> I, I said... I was saying something like this. Is there such thing as a natural Kent? That was kind of what drove me into therapy. I, I think that's the same thing as saying something like, what... Is there a true self? What is... Mm-hmm. I was beginning to see that the masks that I had been wearing didn't fit well anymore. And for a long time in therapy, I was kind of working through um, my relationship with the church or or my dad or, mm-hmm. or work-related things. And until I started realizing I'm, I'm trying to uh, discern... Is it time for, I guess, is it time for me to pull the plug? Although I wasn't exactly talking about that in therapy. That was sort of the underlying subtext. Mm -hmm. And I just needed some help. I needed a a safe enough place. But my therapist was interesting because I I think I put this in one line in my book. If not, I probably said it before. Um, I I said, I'm afraid I'm going to fuck my life up, Mm -hmm. you know, and that it's going to completely fall apart. And he said, yeah, I'm here to make sure that that happens. What? Yeah, which yeah. was what I needed to hear. Yeah. I mean, maybe there was a flash of insight because that's exactly, I was like, okay, then I'm, I'm in the right enough place for right now yeah. because he wasn't trying to piece my life back together. Hey, don't worry, let me give you, give you some skills for negotiating your work environment. You yeah, know? right. No, let's go deeper. Yeah. And, um, but when I, when I decided that I was done, this was several years in the making, if, if I'm really honest about it. And, but I decided kind of, it felt like on a whim. All of a sudden in the kitchen, I, I said to my wife, I'm done. She's like, okay. And then I went and told the leadership and, and I thought we could have a strategic slow exit. And they kind of freaked out a little bit and said, go now. Like you, you have to be done as quickly as possible. <laughs> I was like, oh. And and, so and that happened in November. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rip the bandaid off. That happened in November, and my dad died in December. So all this stuff, and I was in the middle of this um, year-long program. Same person I mentioned before, Bill Plotkin, uh, Animus Valley Institute had the, had this year-long immersion where you would go to these four different locations and a lot of psycho-spiritual work and um, in a small group setting, and that's intense. And yeah. all this stuff was happening at the same time, and I didn't know where my paychecks were going to come from. Right. So maybe something of the soul, that's my, my hope, maybe something of the soul was luring me into this dangerous ground, and it felt lonely, like mm-hmm. really, really lonely. My phone really did stop ringing. And, and what does that say about just human nature? I, it's like a, the, the, that, at that point, pastor uh, congregation is a relationship. It is a divorce. There's collateral damage, you know, like maybe not intentionally like that, but there's perceptions of betrayal or these things that other people feel that aren't, weren't privy to your journey to that point and and I think are some ways you know maybe aren't all that interested in even understanding it you know mm-hmm. but 
I think that sort of one, two, three. So uh, as you, what was that next six months like when you were, you leave Mars, your dad dies, you're also in therapy about who is the real Kent. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, but... No, yeah. <laughs> but I get it. But that, that's the essence of everything, right? Like, uh, yeah. that's the... All these outward explorations, to me, feel like it all feeds back to being more secure in, in our own skin and who we are as mm. we get more, more knowledgeable or more seasoned to go, okay, there are some things I understand, and... There's some things I don't understand. and But I can't imagine what it, that was like to go get to a point where you're like, I'm done. I'm sure you had a complicated relationship with your dad over time. Mm -hmm. And then you're a pastor's kid who became a pastor. Mm -hmm. That has its own sort of like probably, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, am I just doing this? Is it the family biz or... Yes, yeah, it's what I knew. It's yeah. what I knew. And there's some truth to that. And there's even some truth, and I hate to admit it, that I was doing it to please my dad mm -hmm. and my, my family of origin. And that's really painful for me to admit. It's actually more embarrassing. It, it, but there's some truth to that. I remember when I, I, just, I decided to leave, and I told my parents, both of them, and this is before my dad died, and my dad didn't have a response. Of course, he could barely talk. Um, as you know, he died of ALS, so he, he, he could barely talk. And that was um, sad to not have a kind of engagement. But my, my mom in particular wanted something more out of it. Mm -hmm. She wanted my dad to respond in some way. And I, something came over me, and it was a feeling of, I don't need that. Right. And, and I ended up, this is one of the last conversations I had with my dad. I said, mm -hmm. yes, I'm leaving. And I told him the truth. I said, I, I, I actually told him what I told the congregation, that I feel called, in a sense, called to the unknown, to the edges, mm -hmm. to be, I, I have to, I don't know what's next, but if I don't go, I'll never find out. And that's kind of what I said to my dad. And I said, I don't need a response. I don't need, I just let him off the hook. And he kind of nodded, and we had this passing moment that felt connecting without any words. And maybe in a way, um, he understood more than most people what sure. was going on. Uh, at least that's, well, I he hope had that. some unconventional journeys he after. Did. He, he You know, I mean, did. just being diagnosed, but then living, I, I photographed one of his book covers, The Year of Living Like Christ, or I forget mm -hmm. the actual title of it. But yeah, Like Jesus. Or right. Living Like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And... That's an unconventional way to live. Yeah. You know? He had this kind of slightly rebellious, unconventional... Actually, if you go back to social acceptance or authenticity, he was yeah. trying to find his own way. And maybe in many respects... Um, my wife actually said this one time, that people criticize, have criticized me, even in my own family, for sort of betraying the family business and not carrying the torch on. And she said, actually, in many respects, you've, that's exactly what you've done. Con continued yeah. to follow the questions where they yeah. might lead and willing to take some risks. And I did, in part, learn that from my dad. When he did die, though, it was strange because it was, it was sad, but it was also freeing in a way. And, um, and, and he had a terrible disease, so yeah. there was a sense a lot of, of relief. Yeah, there was a lot of suffering. And I think, you know, I don't know if there's a world record for living with ALS, but he seemed to live 
uh, as a blessing and also as a, a curse in the curse, end. That's curse. right. To uh, you know, I, I don't know how long he lived eight or nine years, probably or longer. Long. Fifteen. He had it fifteen years. I mean, that's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. The last yeah. five were really hard. Yeah. And oh, and when I say sense of freedom, I I mean it even existentially. Yeah. Like, um, okay, uh, this chapter of my life is over, mm-hmm. and and there is a sense that um, that death is not a problem. That was that was the a kind of um, felt experience that this is not a problem. And I didn't believe my dad was up in heaven running around and like playing soccer with his yeah. Northern Ireland buddies. It, it was, it was more of an experience. And I, I, and not one that was theoretical that I read in a book. Death right. is not a problem. It was a, it was a felt experience. And in some ways that along with a few others changed my life, you know, and, and in the middle of all this, that's a kind of ground. That's a religious experience. Yeah. And, um, and so to have, I guess, religious experiences in the midst of like public perception, this guy has left the reservation or whatever, helped me continue to put one foot in front of the other, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I think that breaks it down from like, uh, the fact that you felt something about the passing of your father in a sense that wasn't rooted in. I know he's dancing in heaven now in a new body. Um, but there was that piece of going, okay, death is part of our cycle. Yeah. And it's just that natural. It's as natural as being born. Yeah, that's, and, that's exactly it. And, and in fact, I didn't believe those things. Not yeah. that my personal beliefs really matter. I don't yeah. believe it, that, you know, he got sucked up to heaven. But so what? Right. <laughs> um, that's... That's a mental construct. What I'm describing is n- not really. It's, it seemed like a, a, a real felt experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were you there when he actually passed? No, this was actually... Uh, what can I say about this? Um, I was in Georgia. My wife's from Georgia. And uh, he died the day after Christmas. And we happened to be down there. And my mom had called earlier in the day and said, he's not doing so well, and this could be it. But she had said that a dozen times over the course of a year. Sure. So I just said probably another one of those kinds of things. I had an intuition that I wouldn't be there. I don't know why. Mm. Um, And I don't regret not being there. I don't have any regrets like I wish I could have said this or done that or... Um, well, it sounds like you'd had the exchange that I did. you wanted with him that set you free is the wrong word, but it set it, it, it allowed you to have peace mm-hmm. and an understanding that you desire. I mean, you would of course want your father to go, okay, son, yeah. you're, uh, you're on your own journey. You've left home. You left home a long time ago and you're okay mm-hmm. basically to keep going. Yeah. And in that uncertainty, I, I go back to your dad living like he lived as a Jew. He grew a your beard. <laughs> yeah. Had the pants with the <laughs> little strings. <laughs> strings on it. Yeah. Like, I mean, talk about being uh, willing to live 
uh, outside of a societal norm mm-hmm. to to probe something for himself. Yeah, is especially in the context of where he evolved. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to break down everything, but like he seemed to me to come through this journey of churning, changing. And I, my perspective is from very far away because I wasn't part of the last part of his um, when he was pastor, and then you know through his retirement, but. I did have more contact with him individually than I had with, uh, than I ever had with him when he was a pastor. Mm-hmm. Like he used to text me sometimes to go grab coffee and he could still walk. And I remember yeah. how he would have his cappuccino or a little espresso and yeah. he would drink it at the coffee shop. And it was just amazing. But he had come through this whole, like, he had, in some ways, and just for me being on the outside, and maybe you feel it too, but it feels to me like you're both, were challenging. He was as challenging the framework of his, where he came from, and what he believed coming out of Falwell and evolved. He had the courage to change his belief structure. Yeah, he did. Mm -hmm. And in times where, I don't think it's ever easy, but I think if you want to leave uh, the constructs of what you're supposed to believe, I think he, he did it in a way that was um, authentic to mm-hmm. Ed. Like he was still trying to find Ed just like Kent and I'm trying to find Brian. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that um, made it difficult for me in the last few years is that, I think what you're saying is true. My dad found a creative way of pushing against the system and challenging people, and he was just a good human being. Mm -hmm. He liked to text people and go out for coffee. He wasn't um, this abstract figure Mm -hmm. that you couldn't approach. In fact, quite the opposite. And that's what um, gave him a lot of life. It's just real people and stories, and he loved to laugh, and he even loved to make I fun of I still hear things, his laugh. You know? His laugh is it's the, the best. most funny laugh ever. I think I shared that one photo I took of him yeah. in, his, in this pool, around his pool in the backyard. So good. With the, <laughs> an inflatable little crab in yeah. front of him. <laughs> was, I still laugh at that. I'll post that photo because in the context of your photo gallery, yeah. All right. just because of the... Anyway, just the, there's something that's so wryly funny about him and being, I think, the Irish sensibility. Yeah. I'm not from the homeland, but I think Irish people definitely have a sense of humor. That's oh, they do. Great. And they have a sense of humor about religion. Yeah. And, um, and he definitely embodied that kind of light humor, sage-like mm-hmm. quality. Um, and that, that says a lot. And I hope in some ways I... It can embody the same thing, even though I'm not quite in this, you know, I'm not the same roles. But one of the things I was going to say about what you're saying, the and to it, is I also saw in the final years that the role of being the man, the answer man, mm-hmm. um, still plagued him. And people still sort of flocked to him sure. for the answers. And I remember one time I came down to the basement which is where he liked to hang out and watch soccer. Um, and there was somebody just literally sitting at his feet, like holding on to them. I didn't know who this person was. And that, that's a kind of a gross feeling anyway. Yeah. It's an invasive feeling. Yeah. And I realized, oh, okay, they are worshiping, in a sense, a kind of false 
image. And my dad either didn't have the strength to smash that image, um, and that may have been more the truth. Like he just was, he, what, what could he say? Right. Yeah, and he could barely talk at, the, yeah. at this point, except to receive someone else's massive projection. That's the psychological way of looking at it. These sure. are massive projections put on him, almost to sainthood status. Yeah. And watching that also was, was one thing that, that sent me out the door. I was like, mm-hmm. I, no, I, I don't want to live like this. And um, I don't want to die like this. Yeah. Surrounded... Uh, with with a lot of attachment to a kind of persona. Whether or not he could let go of it or not, I don't know. Right. Um, but anyway, it troubled me. I think he did. I I, I had questions uh, during a couple of coffees, and I, I only went a handful of times. Like, I mean, it wasn't like we were best friends. I mean, I don't I don't know what the connection was because I didn't really sneak it. I he asked me to do some things for his book, and then I had shot. Um, I was working on a on a mini documentary that didn't really go anywhere and didn't go anywhere. But I was, I interviewed your dad and I have some tapes and a file of it. And I was questioning around the birth of my daughter and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And I was, but I think for me, he, he did say, I don't know, you know, if you're the answer man and you're not just going to quote scripture and verse for every problem and, mm-hmm. and just dump it and go on your way. Like, I think he really, he didn't understand why he had ALS. Yeah. He just it's said, true. this is it. This is, this is why he didn't question it. Yeah. And he didn't. Well, he did it question it, I think, but he didn't, he did not have a stock answer. He, he said, well, I that's don't what I mean. Know. I mean, yeah. not that he didn't. Of course, you're going to mm-hmm. question. I was, we're all questioning yeah. everything all the time. But the point is, he didn't feel like God had given it to him. And that's why, uh, I don't know. I don't know why he kept in touch from, you know, maybe once a year uh, for about three, four years we go. And he connected to my parents. We talked mm-hmm. about him. Went to hiking with my dad in Hawaii. And so yeah. I don't know, there was some connection, but I know he had many people in his house and young people. He was still surrounded himself with younger people that mm-hmm. were trying to think differently about, not differently, but just in a, it wasn't religion. It wasn't in the big Calrandinam world of Bible study and mm-hmm. go on Wednesdays and twice on Sunday and yeah. that type of thinking. He was questioning things. But he, I think he was okay with the, I mean, what he what brought me comfort was he just said, I don't know. I don't I know. really have any it's answers. It's true. For he you. did say that. And, yeah. um, and what a gift yeah. that, that that is to people with ears to hear it, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's interesting to hear you, when it comes out of your mouth, I can hear my dad saying it in a way. Yeah. And I'm just reminded, yeah. And I, I think I have to say, I mean, that, that, Gift is part of um, what gave me the courage to take my own path. I mean, um, he was not a person that was coming in and saying, don't go, don't leave home, whatever you do, don't quit your job. You know, he just very much the opposite in his own life. Well, I think it's helpful to know that you're, that whether it's your father or anyone else, that no one truly has it 100% locked down and figured out. Like, that's, there's so many things we don't know about everything health, life politics, um, income, like yeah, everything, every day is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, somewhat of a, depending on the day, you could frame it as a unex- full of unexpected joy or landmines to tip around, you know, it mm-hmm. just depends on what's happening. But the idea that we're all sort of 
in that same collective of not knowing. And I think I run more from the ideas of people who have so much certainty around things and project that out. Because they don't. They're full of shit. They mm -hmm. cannot know. They may think... I think they've just thought themselves into a, a mindset that they're now imprisoned in, that they it isn't really truth. It's just... It's the ego it's serving the that, ego. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it is a prison. It's a kind of... Yep. It's a spiritual and an existential prison. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people get lucky and something comes and cracks it. You know, like Leonard Cohen, the, the, there's a crack in everything and that's where the light gets in. You, know, you, <laughs> yeah, can, right. you can only hope. Yeah. <laughs> like when I hear about a pastor's big downfall, got caught in a fair or whatever, I think, yeah. yes. Not because I want them to be yeah. injured. There's intense suffering. I mean, right. there's a chance. You're yeah. telling me there's a chance, you know. You <laughs> 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 care. Yeah, exactly. For the... Uh, for the light to get in the crack. Um, yeah. And those are the people that we end up respecting anyway, you know? Yeah, because uh, that's how you can emulate people. I don't mean emulate the bad that they did, but the emulating the life process because bad things will no doubt happen to all of us and mm -hmm. how we are tempered through that process and hopefully emerge stronger on the other side is what, the whole point is, you know, mm -hmm. like finding some good out of chaos is good. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I feel like we could go on forever, but the, I, I do want to talk a little bit. Your book, uh, Bitten by a Camel, it, it's been out a couple of years now, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. then uh, it's widely available, I'm sure, on Amazon or wherever. Yep, pretty oh. much widely available only on Amazon. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's on Amazon. Um, but uh, there was two parts to that. Oh, I wanted to really talk to you more about these um, excursions that you're hosting out, mm -hmm. you know, to the Holy Land and other places. Mm -hmm. And now is it, you, you alluded to that there's more of a, I don't want to call it survival camp, but what is some <laughs> of a minimalism of uh, like well, a I'll, I'll tell you what it yeah, is. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, I've been leading trips to Israel ever since I was in graduate school. So, yeah. I mean, this is like my 17th year. And for some reason, I just keep doing it. I, I, I love the, the idea of pilgrimage, which is how I sort of think about the trips. Mm -hmm. it's the, a pilgrimage is like uh, it mirrors the adventure of, of life, of a spiritual life. And there's so and, much about and leaving it, home and leaving home. And there's so much about it. You seriously go into the unknown. No one, no one knows what they're talking about when it right. comes to Israel, I know, politically, culturally, yeah. historically, biblically. And so it's a 101 adventure into uh, into expanding what we think we know about mm -hmm. um, faith, religion, spirituality, and the modern state of Israel and Palestine, for that matter. So. Um, and I find it really rewarding. And so, yeah, I, I have one or two of those going per year or something like that. And how is it different than maybe a, uh, you know, just a travel expedition where you go to holy sites? Are there, is well, there a structure to the, how you are guiding this? Yeah. Um, lately, I've been f trying to follow the life of Jesus. So we sort of start in Galilee where he grew up and taught and end in Jerusalem. So I'm kind of following a storyline. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are some holy sites involved. And then, of course, I, was, I went to school there and studied historical geography and comparative religion. So I know of all these obscure places. So I, I, my trips are a bit 
different. Mm-hmm. I'd say half of the day is in sites that, that people don't know anything about. And then I just give them a little taste of Israeli culture, and we spend a little bit of time in the West Bank. And, and I try not to be overly political, mm-hmm. which is almost impossible, just right. by, have, by saying, come with me to Israel, you're making a political statement one, one way or the other. But I want people's um, ideas to at least be challenged and expand a little bit so that they come back and say, wow, I really don't know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and I don't even understand the most basic issues. But, um, but there's a lot of conversation on my trips. That's what makes them different. I'll give some information, some background. We'll look at some texts, and the unfolding conversation in the group is the most rewarding part. Yeah. And people feel, sometimes for the first time, free to say, I don't know what I think about this or that, or what do you think about this or yeah. that? And, um, and because you're with people all day outside, there's just freedom in walking and talking. And, yeah. And it's exactly what Jesus did. You know, right. He just wandered around with, uh, with both men and women and just had a kind of unfolding conversation. That's kind of how I imagine my, my trips. Mm-hmm. The other side of my work has developed in the last few years where I've really realized a couple things after leaving um, megachurch land. I like talking to people. Megachurch. <laughs> one-on-one, which I didn't when I was a pastor. I really, I, this surprised me. Like, no, I actually really care about what people are saying, what their questions are, what their longings are, what's really going on for them. So I find myself doing some one-on-one work. And then... Um, was it you didn't enjoy it before because everything else was so complicated? Meaning like you had. 10 I think other I was just immature. I think yeah. I was just immature, and that's what it comes down to. Uh, I did meet with people when I was a pastor, but what about is that about vulnerability too? I mean, to really enjoy some uh, conversation like we're having, you have to be. I have had to say things I wasn't planning on saying. Yeah. You know, like not that I had to, but like I. That's where like it feels more connected. Yeah, and it also feels like maybe you wouldn't have. I probably had, I definitely have some issues in that department anyway, um, partly because I grew up in, when my dad worked for Jerry Falwell and Calvary Church here in, in Michigan, I, I lived a kind of public life as a kid, yeah. and I didn't like it, right. or I loved, I loved it and hated it at the same time, so sure. I have just a million walls, and when people, when I was a pastor, I guess, I had, those were up, and so that's what I mean, I, I wasn't ready yet, I wasn't mm-hmm. willing to be very vulnerable, and and that has passed a little bit. I still yeah. struggle, but my main point is now I re- I really I like meeting with people and speaking uh, with them on a on a personal level instead of just sort of espousing things from a pulpit. So that's been a surprise. And the other has um, is in what I I guess we call nature based soul work. Mm-hmm. So this. I'm a part of a place called Animus Valley Institute in Colorado, and it was started by a psychotherapist, Bill Plotkin, and ever since the 80s, he's been developing various kinds of programs, five to 11 days where you're going out into wild places in a small group setting and diving pretty deep, both into wounds, wholeness, the relationship between the soul and nature, um, it's not ecotherapy, they would argue mm-hmm. with that, but it's not too far from that world. Yeah. And, um, but really, the, the beneath that is, is my very same questions, which are, is there a natural Kent? Yeah. <laughs> um, what does the soul want? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the old, archetypal, ancient questions. And for something, there's something about being in a wild place that expands that conversation and 
and in some senses blows the doors off because you don't have all of these, you don't have the modern world with all of its demands. You have five days of wild nature and its demands, yeah. which turns up the heat on all your existential questions. And, um, but it's not easy. It's not easy work, which is, which is why I'm in the training program. And yeah. I have been for the last couple of years because when you take people outside in those kinds of settings and you turn the heat up on their right, existential right. questions, you have to know what you're doing. Yeah. So, but I'm getting more and more in the, into that kind of work and I find it really life-giving and, yeah. uh, and pretty awesome. So what is it about the, I'm a little, I mean, I understand the concept. I, I didn't know that the ecotherapy was a thing to use <laughs> nature and a bit of isolation to confront things. It seems pretty appealing. It's amazing. Um, and here are some elements that, that stand out about it. One, if we're to believe science, <laughs> and which... <laughs> you said that like it was a real question. I know, I know. Well, it is to people nowadays, you know. Uh, but science uh, confirms what ancient spiritualities always intuited, which is all things are connected and all things are interrelated. And which brings us back to what I couldn't articulate before, what you just said. It's like there's like this energy and it's exactly. in and out. It's like it's it is all connected. It's, a, it's connected. Yeah. And. Um, so when you're in wild places, the possibility of experiencing that connection really enhances. Yeah. And, um, and it makes you feel more whole. There's a poet, Gary Snyder, and he has a great line. He says, um, to speak of wilderness is to speak of wholeness, and human beings came out of that wholeness, which is incredible. And he doesn't mean perfection. It's not Garden of Eden. He means wholeness. And our own capacities for wholeness and self-healing and depth and richness, but it requires interconnection and an experience of interrelatedness with all beings. And, it's, and that's easier to experience in the natural world. That's our prime. We are natural beings. I mean, we're, mm -hmm. we're, it's not like some people that shop at REI are into nature and others aren't. Right. It's we are nature. And so um, anyway, so people experience that, uh, a bit of that. And also... Um, when you're like, I, one of the things that I, I did as part of this program is a, a vision fast, um, a five, uh, a four day, three night experience alone. And that's not survival, like, uh, like whatever those shows on the <laughs> sure, Discovery sure. Channel or whatever. Yeah. Actually, something quite the opposite happens. And instead of like me versus nature, you, you, there's somehow a um, not that nature is your friend. I don't want to be naive. Right. A, a storm can kill you. Let's let's sure. use our common sense. But um, there's a there's an opportunity where the ego, meaning who I think I am, dissolves, and then all of a sudden, it's like nature itself, wild creatures, being trees, flowers, animal encounters begin, I don't, I wouldn't say speak to you like, hey, let me tell you what mm -hmm. your life is about, but something, it's like a mirror to your own soul. And you feel like something of your soul is being reflected in the natural world. And it gives you a sense of direction, but not the kind of direction that's like uh, self-help, like mm -hmm. um, here are five steps to a new life. It's, it's more mysterious than that. And I think actually what's happening is something of your own essence, mm -hmm. your soul, vibrates or resonates 
with the natural world and certain things in the natural world, a mountain, a tree, a flower, an encounter. And this is not a place you'd expect me to take it, but okay. I've heard people that have like microdosed with certain types of, you know, acid or whatever that have sort of this, uh, opening awakening mm-hmm. that's, it's not, uh, indu- I think it's sort of that it appeals maybe to this. And I'm, I'm very sorry if that just like messed it up, but I, in terms of like just having this, um, a consciousness that maybe wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people are seeking, whether it, but it's sort of, uh, that <laughs> I'm not equating what you're doing to taking acid, but well, the point I'm, is, is that I've never taken it, but some part of me is like, I wonder if I would should do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds crazy, but well, like, it's, it's, first of all, it's become kind of a, a thing. Yeah. Ayahuasca and mushrooms and yeah, not LSD so much, but a little bit. And all kinds of incredible research is happening at Johns Hopkins and, and various other places around psychedelics. And so I, I have a certain kind of openness to that research. One of the things we say at Animus, sort of privately, is that in some senses it's a little like cheating, because uh, especially for uh, immature uh, psychologically immature people and can be quite dangerous, mm-hmm. because if the veneer, to use your word, mm-hmm. of the ego dissolves, even for four hours, you can get into some really serious, deep shit mm-hmm. very quickly. And so it's not... Being the drug is a cheat to yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the, it's a, it's to a the, too rapid, uh, maybe, too, yeah. It's too rapid, too confined, and yeah. the question becomes, how is something like that integrated? So mm-hmm. those are just questions that I have. Yeah. And, and of course, if it becomes the kind of thing where I have to keep returning to... A substance, sure. Um, and I don't mean addiction, although yeah. that could that's a possibility of that. I just mean the substance is my gateway. Um, it doesn't seem to be very well integrated. So those are just cautions around it. Yeah. The other thing is that every night when we go to sleep, we have a dream landscape, which is better than any mushrooms. <laughs> so I do sure. work with dreams, and um, and just being alone without food, oftentimes does similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in terms of the dissolving of who I think I am. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit easier to integrate as well. Um, but anyway, so I don't yeah. think they're actually worlds apart. Well, and I didn't, I, I you know, I, I really hesitate to even put that out there, but I was just reminding me when I talk to people that have done, especially mushrooms now, which is, you know, uh, it is a thing, and I work with, I work with all kinds of people and crews and things that are into all kinds of different things. But um, that idea of... um, It it was more of the collision of nature and using nature as that sort of awakening to a part of your subconscious that wasn't on your... You know, it wasn't at the surface Mm -hmm. and you couldn't even really explore it because you would never get there without completely isolating yourself from your day-to-day explosion of you know stimulus everywhere Mm -hmm. but the idea of the the retreat or the um, the destination of a journey to intentionally go off and I I suppose it's as intentional as it is also you have to let go of all those things you can't like just I'm going to go into the forest that was like the the camel bitten by a camel journey like you went on this pilgrimage to a mountain and nothing happened you felt nothing yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly that's actually 
it's that's a kind of that's a desire for self-initiation. We don't have very many initiatory kinds of experiences, and the idea that I'm going to go to Mount Sinai and God's going to speak to me, which is in the Bitten by a Camel book, yeah. and just to experience a kind of disaster, which is exactly what I needed. Right. Um, but it was a it was, part of it was a desire for initiation, like, um, and I think even with mushrooms, people desire to be initiated into a larger vision of their own life, and. It's it's amazing that people will take enormous risks toward that end mm-hmm. and say, I don't care what the social conventions are. I hope there's something more to the veneer of my life. Right. Um, and the people that are drawn to animus programs ha- have a bit of that going on. Uh, the beauty of them is that there are two guides and there's a there's a structure and and you're learning also from the other people in the, in a group format. Um, and so I think that the possibility of 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 uh, it doesn't manufacture transformation. Transformation is the work of mystery, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But um, it, there's enough scaffolding there that can help help that initi- initiatory kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're just going off on your own, hoping for the best, it can be <laughs> a disaster. It can be a disaster. I mean, yeah. I, I suppose it, for some people it works, but. Um, your the ego. Even if you take all the mushrooms in the world, you know the ego is still the ego and yeah. likes to manufacture a story around how enlightened you think you are. Right. <laughs> so being in a group setting helps helps temper that and put you in a context that that is humbling. And yeah, um, I was just going to get tie back to that because we talked about ego and the and humility. And I don't know anything specifically that you said, but it's just the. Um, going back to it like life constantly bringing you back towards humility like it will in most circumstances if you're too ego or too like you'll have things that smash that that will humble you again Mm -hmm. or even with knowledge comes humility or the more knowledge is it's it's the next frontier there's always the next frontier like why did we go to the moon and send out satellites and now you know yeah, things to Mars and other planets. Like it's we're we're always stretching. Whether they're mental, like you going into nature, expanding your boundaries. Whether they're physical or mental or spiritual, isn't that all mm-hmm. the same exercise? Yeah. Well, let me say a couple things. One of the th- this is a metaphor, and metaphors have their limits. But I think there are really two sides to spirituality. One is spirit which is upward oriented oneness union maybe even the desire like to go to the moon you know the mm-hmm. the the the, transcend, the upper branches of the tree reaching upward toward the divine toward god the other side is the area of the soul so spirit and soul um, and soul is underworld its roots its depth its humility in this sense like the origin of that word is humus w- w- meaning of the earth you know mm-hmm. and um, that's often the missing side of spirituality which is, as we use the term, mm-hmm. meaning soul. Sure. And we have lots of ways of transcendence and, and not that many that are of the earth and, in, and are rooted and are grounded. And, and that's humbling. And nature is humbling. I remember I was with a group just outside of Jackson Hole 
And I mean, this is a wild place. I mean, there are some wild places in the United States. And we're sitting there, and there's a small group of 10 of us, and we're sitting in our little chairs having our little psycho-spiritual, you know, conversations and blah, blah, blah. And a moose, a bull moose, walks up. And these are very unpredictable creatures. And walked right up to us about 10 feet away. And, and I was the closest. And I sort of moved my chair um, ever so slightly, because if he was going to charge, I wasn't going to embrace the oneness of the universe. I was going <laughs> to run for my life. Right. And, and they're not very quick side to side, something I happen to know about them. So if you just dodge to the right or the left, sometimes they won't strike you. But Noted. I was just yeah. in Maine, where there's a lot of like uh, moose collision yeah. warnings on the, high, or on the side routes. Yeah. Anyway. And this being is the size of a horse. And I've had several very close animal encounters. One of them was with a mother grizzly bear and her cub. And there was something in the eyes of the grizzly bear and in this moose where I was afraid, but I didn't think it was going to happen. I don't, it's like an intuition. Yeah. It just was looking, like just looking. And we probably, all of us in the group, stood there for five minutes without moving. And it just looked. It just stared at us until it decided it was going to do whatever it was going to do. But talk about humbling. I mean, there's no like, I'm enlightened, you know, there's no, I, from dust you came to dust you shall return. And, um, and that is a grounding kind of experience. And I think you need both. You need moments of union and oneness and transcendence, and you need the humbling of the earth itself. And that's part of the reason why I'm drawn to these programs. Not that I want to put people in the way of a moose. I just mean just being in nature like that, um, does the right kind of work and opens, creates a little, a few more cracks in the ego so the light can get in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. What, anything we didn't cover? I feel good. There's a lot. Yeah. Uh, We, we meandered. Um, (laughs) It was very meandering. I hope when I listen back to this, that I I have made any sense at all, but, uh, thank you. But I think it's, um, well, it's exactly why I want to talk to you because I knew, not knowing you personally that well, but knowing how uh, curious you've been and the risks, I say risks, mm, I don't mean that they were, ri- well, they were risks for sure. I admire that. And I think it's easy to be comfortable and easy to just not rock the boat. But I mean, there's something in you as a, as a lightning rod, a beacon to not just accept because you could felt you could still be at a mega church, whether it was that one or somewhere else, have a career, you know, yeah. if that was important. But you've done the most difficult thing, I think, which is to not do the easy thing. And yeah. that and it doesn't seem driven like oh, I just need to challenge myself. It's driven from there's something inauthentic. Always seeking authenticity, and not that you were sitting in 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 authenticity, but the drive for more authenticity in your all parts of yourself because it's everything now it's mm. author it's career it's pastor you're still pastoring uh, a, so a very small church in Grand Haven mm-hmm. but it's all connected right yeah so. yeah I would say that all... I hold those differently like yeah. I think that's part of the first half of life anyway where you need your vocation to be a part of your identity I think once you've just tasted and I mean really tasted that your identity is not bound up in these vocational Images, well, it gives you a lot of freedom. Yeah, and they're meaningless at the end of the day. Yeah, 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 but you don't know that in the first half of sure. life. You think I'm simply in the wrong career, yeah. and if I just swapped over, then I would find. And I had a bit of that going on at the beginning of my own sort of crises. But I, it's yeah, 
having gone through one sort of death, <laughs> there may be many more to come. I, I, I hold the vocational piece a little less tightly. Yeah. Although the question remains, how do I bring forth who I think I am in the world? You know, yeah. what, are, what are my gifts and my contribution? And, and, and that involves the conversation again with vocation, how to best serve the aims of the soul rather than mm-hmm. how can I best serve my, my career, uh, my, my egoic persona so I can get my retirement, you know, right. um, something else begins to, I don't know, take over. Well, anyway. I can't wait to have you back, man. I Thanks. really appreciate you coming in and it's my pleasure digging into it a bit. I love what you're doing and uh, <laughs> keep it up. I'll try to be a little more well-read next time you come back. Why? Just be. Uh, we read. We read the world, you know, and so you've learned to read the world in a certain way. And well, that's what, the one thing I'm amazed about. Just knowing, like, uh, the amount of reading that I get a sense that you've done in your entire life through seminary and continue to explore and read all the time. It's this inner space that you're you're in your in it's in in your head a lot about thinking about these ideas, and mystical things and all the and finding meaning in all that. It's never it's uh it's amazing to me because I'm not wired like that. I was just joking with my dad. He gave me a, a, several books growing up that I never finished. I can't seem to finish a book. <laughs> You know, <laughs> thankfully we have audio books now. <laughs> yeah, so I'm listening to more podcasts, but that's yeah. probably a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, the fact that you know, out of all that reading, you were still all of us wrestling with the same ideas and mm-hmm. same kind of uncertainty. But through that, also comes some certainty that that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hope like. I don't just read to be a scholar or something, you know. I, I read because I'm I am personally hungry for something. Yeah, right. And but I also see it as one of my strengths in and I can get stuck in this, but in assimilating the information and trying to make it a little more palatable for people who who aren't gonna read all of Carl Jung or, you know, some scholarly work on the historical Jesus. Um just to make it a little more accessible and part of ordinary conversation. We live in a world that, of Google, and so information is becoming easier to access, um, but difficult to assimilate, you yeah. know? And uh, if I can help in some small way uh, contribute to the great conversation of life, death, God, <laughs> meaning just a small contribution, then yeah. I, I feel like, all right, then, um, uh, I don't know, I... I I'm honored to be a, a participant, I would say. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it's been a great conversation for me, so thank you again, man. Yeah. Well, you made it through. That was a heavy, heavy episode, guys and ladies and people. Uh, you know, I, here, hats off to you if you got through two hours of this intense uh, spiritual conversation. Let me know what you think. I love getting letters. I get a lot of them, actually. I don't mean like postal letters because no one writes those anymore. I get a lot of direct messages on Facebook and uh, text, email, even LinkedIn. I get a lot of messages on LinkedIn, actually. Um, and uh, let, let me know what you thought. Has this challenged you? Were you at Mars Hill when, uh, when Kent left? 
when Rob Bell left, uh, you know, uh, did you read his book, Bitten by a Camel? And if you haven't, you should buy it. And I put a link on Amazon on the FullExposurePodcast.com website. Don't forget to check that out on Kent's episode page. Uh, you'll see the photo I put of um, his father, Ed Dobson. I shot of him in his backyard. I took portraits of Kent in my studio. And then you'll see uh, video excerpts of us conversation and uh, conversating. We're just straight up conversating in my studio. And you can see video excerpts of that conversation from this very podcast. So please uh, check out fullexposurepodcast.com. Also, if you can, I know every every podcast says this, but it's true. Uh, try to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or whoever you are, wherever you are in the world. Uh, leave a rating for us. Hopefully, four or five stars would be amazing if you like us. Uh, it helps uh, other people find us and uh, kind of tweaks those algorithms. So let me know, more importantly than leaving any kind of rating or subscribing, please let me know if this episode touched you, if Kent hit struck a nerve in a good way and, and challenged you. He certainly challenges me uh, to keep thinking on my journey and staying thirsty for uh, a better way forward. So uh, you guys have a great week. Vacation's probably over for you too. You're going to be sending your kids back to school before you know it. So let's get at it. Let's have fun. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.